1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: If your genes make you better suited to succeed, is that fair? And if not, can anything be done about it? Uh, Catherine Page Harden, professor of psychology at the University of Texas in Austin, argues that we should acknowledge the difference in our genetic makeup and then set about thinking how to make a fairer society in the light of such differences. So, Professor, welcome.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: And and let's just sort of understand what genetics are able to tell us right at the beginning. So, you are clear that you believe genetics, as well as, you know, socioeconomic situation, parental influence and so on, genetics matter in educational attainment.
0: Yes. So we have seen for quite a long time, decades, that people who are more genetically similar to one another, so let's say identical twins, are more similar in how well they do in school than people who are more genetically different, say fraternal twins or regular siblings. But there's always been the question, well, is that really telling us something about genetics or maybe maybe identical twins are treated more similarly? Maybe it's really the environment that's causing that. That debate is not really a scientific debate anymore. Now that we can measure the human genome um, uh, cheaply and at scale, we've identified specific genetic markers that are correlated with going further in school. And when you add up that information in people of European genetic ancestry, your genes are as strongly related to, say, finishing college as knowing whether your family was rich or poor. So it doesn't determine your educational success, but it definitely makes a difference. And it makes it as big of a difference as some of the other variables that I think we're more used to thinking about and talking about.
2: Okay, you, you said the European population group that this applied to why that qualifier?
0: That qualifier, because that is the people in whom the research has been done. So if we look at the biggest contributors to large scale genetic studies in the world, most of our data actually comes from people who identify as white British and are part of the UK Biobank, people in Iceland, and customers of 23andMe who also identify as white and whose recent genetic ancestors came from Europe. So even though people whose recent genetic ancestors come from Europe is just a tiny slice of the global genetic variation, because of where the research is conducted and who the research is conducted in, almost all of our information comes about those people. And that information isn't what scientists call generalizable. You can't take the information that you've learned about white British people in the UK and apply it to anyone in the globe. It's really specific to them.
2: Yeah, and we'll get on to those tricky issues uh, later in the interview. But uh, just first of all, when you said that the genetic makeup is, uh, you know, a more significant factor than previously thought, can you just put it, I mean, are you able to put it into relation to environmental factors, parental factors, and, and so on. It, what, you know, c- can you give us some impression of the weight of the influence of genetics?
0: Yeah. So one way to think about it is if you looked in the United States and you said, what percentage of the variation So all the ways that people differ in how far they go in school, so their number of years of education, out of all that variation, how much could be accounted for by the fact that some people grow up in rich families and some people grow up in poor families? And that number is between 10 and 15%, um, depending on how you count it. So what that means is that richer children are more likely to go further in school. They're more likely to graduate from college, but there's still differences. So, not every rich child succeeds in school, not every poor child struggles in school. It's about 15% of the variation um, that we can account for by its correlation with family income. When we add up all the genetic information that we currently know about, um, we get a relationship that is about as strong. So, about 15 to 20%. Of the differences between people and how far they go in school, can be attributed to this genetic difference that we can measure between them. So again, it's a difference maker, but it's not deterministic.
2: I mean, to, to really sort of uh, journalize this and, and sum it down: nature or nurture, both.
0: Both, always both, definitely,
2: and in about equal proportion.
0: Yes, in about equal proportion,
2: yeah, interesting. okay. so so now then, just before we get on to all the implications of this, what are the best objections you've heard to what you've just said? you know in in the in this study of Europeans, fifteen percent are you aware of things that make you worry about the solidity of those findings?
0: I would say the best objections are there's two, I think of the of the most incisive objections. And the first one I've already mentioned, which is that, These are results that apply within people who have um, what we often call European genetic ancestry in the United States and in the UK, they would be racially identified as white. And there's a ton of educational equality that exists between different racial groups. And genetics is not telling us anything about that. So I would say the, the biggest criticism of thinking about genetics is, well, are we really worried about the differences in education within, you know, this group of people who are often the most socially advantaged? That isn't telling us anything about racialized inequalities. And that's a that's a really major source of inequality in a country. So I, that, I think that's the, the biggest objection. And then I think the second objection is, we don't know how these genes work. So it could be that... Some of these genes are related to how your brain is organized such that you can process information more quickly. But it could also be that some of these genes are related to, I'll give you a real example. Some of these genes are related to being a morning person. And we just happen to start school really early. And if we arrange school differently, then people who quote unquote have unlucky genes now, they look luckier in a different social situation. So I think the, the inability to speak to racial differences and inequality and the opacity of mechanism are the two biggest kind of qualifiers for this work right now.
2: Okay. And, and uh, also just in a sort of introductory section of this, you are saying that you believe for social justice reasons, it is a good idea to take into account genetic makeup uh, when trying to achieve what most people say they think ought to happen, which is equality of opportunity.
0: Yes, exactly. That's a great summary.
2: And and tell
0: us what you think
2: can be done to achieve this equality of opportunity that takes genes into account.
0: So I think there's two ways in which genes are are relevant for thinking about achieving a more equal society. The first is around why would we even value equality why what is what are we why is that even a goal? Um, in the United States right now, if you ask people is income inequality, differences between the rich and the poor even a problem to be addressed, you find a great deal of disagreement about that and the most common Um, belief amongst people who think that income inequality isn't even a problem to be addressed, isn't something we need to worry about, is this idea that people who have experienced more educational success or socioeconomic success have earned it, that it's because they've worked harder, because they've delayed gratification, because they have taken more risks, because they've studied. And if we think about the role of genetics in our lives, I think that has the power to really trouble that belief that people who've succeeded in school um, have earned their success or deserve their success in quite the same way, because you didn't ask you didn't ask to be born, but you didn't ask to get a certain set of genes. That's just that's a, a lottery of birth, a, you know, luck and. The the title of my book, The Genetic Lottery, is a play off of this idea from the philosopher John Rawls, in which he talks about the natural lottery. And he asks us to imagine, if you didn't know what the outcome of the natural lottery was going to be, what kind of a society would you want to live in how would you set up the rules of the game if you didn't know what your starting position was going to be so one of the ways that i think genetics can help us think about equality is by encouraging people to take that thought experiment seriously if you didn't know what hand you were going to be dealt in the genetic lottery if you didn't know whether you were going to get the genes that made it easier for you to do in school what would you think would be the the fair way to set up society? Um, So that's really just a way of getting people to think about what does even equality mean? Why is it important? The second way that I think genetics is relevant is because we know that not everything that we try in education works or works in the same way for everyone. Uh, We kind of already see this. If you have children, you know that. Um, you know, the best teachers for one child in your family not, might not be the best teacher for every child in your family, That there's individual differences between kids and how they learn and, and what they need from a school system in order to succeed. So a, a lot of times I ask people to imagine what if every piece of information we currently had about a child's socioeconomic status was deleted from our education system, so educational researchers had no idea which kids were coming from poor families or or rich families. How much harder would it be to figure out what's really working in education if you couldn't tell whether or not this school was succeeding because it just happened to have a lot of rich kids in it versus it was really meeting kids where they were and helping them thrive? That is currently the situation that we're in with regards to genetic information in education. We, we often don't have access to, to that information, and yet we know that genetics is as strongly related to the likelihood of a kid succeeding in school as knowing about their family income is. So we can think of it as a tool for improving our research.
2: When you talk about the, you know, the desirability of equality, and these uh, considerations of fairness. I, mm-hmm. I, I guess 30, 40 years ago, probably there would have been a greater emphasis on what's good for society. You know, brilliant scientists should be rewarded because they bring benefits to everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and some of that may be genetically derived. You know, that their 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 capacity to uh, innovate would be partly down to genetics. So that would be. A, a qualif- yeah that would be sort of taking away from your argument about uh, equality being the be all and end all.
0: So I don't I don't think so because I don't think we need I think we really need to think about equality of what. So for instance, we might decide as a society that you know it doesn't it doesn't matter if it's kind of arbitrary that you got certain genes that make it more likely for you to be a scientist. It still makes sense to follow your example for people who have the most interest and ability in science to be given the most opportunity, and for the prosperity that they create for society, for it to also be used to reward and incentivize them. At the same time, what about people who are not in STEM? What about people who are not in university at all? Does that mean that they are consigned to Jobs that lack flexibility, dignity, a living wage, access to health care. I think we can say some things, maybe some financial reward is, you know, we are okay with some level of inequality of that. And at the same time, think: well, what do we owe everyone by virtue of them being a citizen in our society, or, or even a non-citizen in our society, by virtue of being a person in our society? What do we owe them regardless of? their level of, quote unquote, merit. And so I, I I say that because I don't think we need to think about, are we interested in an in equity of outcomes or a quality of outcomes? We don't need to make that same decision for every single outcome. We can say, well, we really want to equalize people's ability to participate in, under conditions of dignity and to, for them to have access to basic goods and still tolerate some inequality and say, scientists that really create prosperity for the group get a little bit more a little bit larger piece of the pie
2: yeah a bit of inequality but i mean the, the difficulty i mean you know you i think you really know just how tricky all this area is because I, mean, mm-hmm. I, I read you've been called a holocaust
0: <laughs>
2: so it just shows you you know this is really can get into really tricky territory and mm-hmm previously, people who were talking about genetic differences, I'm talking, what, 50, 60 years ago, people who are talking about genetic differences were doing it really to to reward those they considered superior, right, in Nazi Germany. Yes. Uh,
0: and not just reward people they thought were genetically, but but infringe on the bodily autonomy, sterilize, in some cases, commit genocide on people who they thought were genetically, quote, unquote, inferior. So yes, definitely, there is a there is a a terrifying history of people um, sort of invoking genetic differences.
2: And just tell us a a bit about that in your case. I mean, you've been doing this research and you're coming to it, as we've heard, from a position of trying to achieve greater equality. And yes, I'm sure you've been, well, you clearly have been Mm criticised for where this could lead. So what have you faced? Can you just tell us a bit about that?
0: Well, I think what I faced is... You know, a reaction from people who are very concerned about the the risks and have a lot of fear about you know if 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 the lay public knows that genetics is related to intelligence test scores or genetics is related to school performance, is that going to lead to the resurgence of these? Um, you know really atrocious ideas around white supremacy around g- genocidal ideas or or i in the united states we had a long history of involuntarily sterilizing people where i disagree is not about that history or the need to be vigilant against the dangers i 100% agree that this is you know this is an area of science that has risks that we need to tread very carefully at the same time i think we can't just guard against what we don't want to happen. We also have to talk about what we do want to happen. What what do we want to build? There is, I think, no putting the genomic genie back in the bottle. Not in a world where we have 23andMe and people can spit into a tube and mail it in and get a report on their genome. Not in a world in which um, major governments in Europe and in North America are genotyping millions and millions of their citizens. That information is here. That technology is here. Given this history, what do we do now? What world do we want to create? How can we make meaning of this research that's coming out? And I think that that project is vitally important in order for people to, you know, understand the, the technology that we're dealing with.
2: Now, now to, to avoid, yeah, let's be clear, to avoid the charge of racism, you have, uh, you yeah, put, know, put forward a lot of arguments. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is, I mean, we can perhaps just sort of accept some of them early on so that, that we can then get to the heart of it all. So one of them is that race isn't a particularly meaningful category in relation to a lot of this. It's more political. It's more determined by you know, self-identification and lots of things which are not really to do with genes, right? So, the, the, yes. so there's a problem there with the term race. Yes.
0: And I think that's a really profoundly unintuitive for, concept for a lot of people because, you know, we live in a racialized world, um, and we, you know, people say, "Look, I can see that people look different. What do you mean, race isn't a genetic concept? What do you mean, race isn't biological?" So, I, there's one, a, a couple facts that I think are really important um, to kind of illuminate that race is a really bad, race isn't a genetic idea, and in one way to think about that is to think about genetic dissimilarity between people. So how? Dissimilar are people genetically because their ancestors, um, they don't have any ancestors recently, right? They have to go way back in time to find a a common ancestor. Um, Two people from different parts of Africa who would both be categorized as black in the UK or in the US could be as genetically different from one another as the average British person, white British person is from the average Japanese person. Right. Which I think is really I mean and, and much more genetically different. So we have these little boxes that we put people in, and they're either or you're white or black, and they're and they're they're a poor proxy for the genetic similarity and dissimilarity between us. And their function is social. Why do we categorize people? It's because of our social relationships. So, you know, which genes you happen to inherit is a natural fact. How we assign races is a social fact.
2: Now, so that raises some interesting questions. And Japan is probably quite a good example. As I understand the history of Japan, I may be wrong about this, but I think they are much, you know, they've had far less immigration and population yes, they're mixing. they're much more
0: ethnically homogeneous Than, than most other places. Yeah, yes. you're right. Mm-hmm.
2: So does that mean that the Japanese do have a genetic makeup that is more clearly identifiable than, as you described, Africa, you know, huge continent, lots of outside influences and so on. Uh, Is there a difference there in the homogeneity in the genes?
0: You know, that is a really good question that I don't feel qualified to answer because I'm not, I, I don't specialize in, say, the population genetics of East Asian populations. I will say as a general rule that genetics tend to work in continua and not categories and that even the recent histories that we see you know in the last hundred years in the last 200 years in the last 400 years places have had closed borders or more what we would think of it as ethnic linguistic homogeneity that's still a drop in the bucket in terms of the grand sweep of human evolutionary history so i think that my prior is to be skeptical that the surface, the surface facts that we observe are necessarily going to reflect something sort of deep and underlying about someone's genetics.
2: Because it goes back a long way. It could go back millennia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it still must be the case that some population groups are more homogenous than others must be.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, I think what we what we see in the genome is the long history of you know, who gets to have sex with who, right? Who is your neighbor? And that's not just going to be the recent history, that's going to be the long history of that.
2: Right. But my point still stands that there will be differences in the degree of homogeneity.
0: I think that that's probably true, um, that there's going to be some, um, I think what we would say is differences in in structure, depending on how narrowly or widely you're casting your net.
1: That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D.
2: And and I sense you're nervous about going there. And I can sort of understand why, I think. Tell me if I'm wrong. Which is because that does open the door to there are different population groups who could have different genetic characteristics as a group. Because one of the points you're making is we should look at the differences between individuals rather than groups. And I can see why you say that. Uh, And in a way, we don't have the data, right, to... Declare this one way or the other, because as you say, most of the studies have been of Europeans, and we, you know, they're not global yet. But is that fair to say there will be differences between population groups based basically on geography?
0: I don't know if there, if it's fair to say there will be differences. I don't think it's inevitability. I even when we're looking at the world as a whole, right? Mm. So ultimate variation you know, the vast majority of our genetic variants is common across humanity. It's not um, unique to even one tribe or one ethnic group or one area or one location. And what you see is that, you know, there's a lot more commonality than there are differences. So I think it's a mistake scientifically to think that the differences that do exist will inevitably be related to the phenotypic difference as we see. I mean, I think a great example of this is, you know, you take something that seems as, as kind of as straightforwardly biological as height, right? Like we, I think we can all agree that like our biology is related to how tall we are. The process of figuring out which genes are associated with which individual people being taller than other individual people is much, much more scientifically straightforward than figuring out, you know, are Swedes genetically taller than sardinians or something like that because as soon as you move from the individual to the group you're dealing with a uh, kind of a different kettle of fish scientifically and mathematically but also you are moving into a realm of well is it the genes is it the genes are confounded with the environment is this all a product of differences that existed a thousand years ago it's a it's it's A mistake to think that it's inevitable that you're going to move from that individual difference to the group
2: difference. well, it's a really good example. Height, isn't it? Because it's not so politically charged as many other issues. So, so if you, I mean, yeah, surely it must be the case that some population groups are are shorter than others, and yeah, as you say, like in education, that could be down to environment, it could be down to diet, whatever. It could be down to genes, couldn't it? And from what I understood you to be saying at the beginning. When the research is done, we will be able to establish causal relationships between genes and height, diet and height uh, in different population groups. Is that right?
0: I mean, I think the question there is the causal bit. You know, when we're in the realm of individual differences, we have this ability to say, here is here's the randomness of reproduction, right? You could have inherited this gene from your mom and you got this one and that allows you to say with more confidence that the gene is causing something. You don't have that kind of natural experiment when you're talking about you know population groups that have diverged and converged and diverged and converged and moved and migrated and intermixed and admixed over millennia, over the long arc of human history. So I think that that You know, we can never randomize and say, "All right, we're gonna have you're gonna have the exact same genes, but you're not gonna have any of the benefits of being a white British man from." We're gonna basically erase colonial history for the last several hundred years, and you're gonna have have had the same social experiences as enslaved people, right? Like that's a thought experiment that we can't do in the same way that we can do the thought experiment of you happen to inherit this gene versus this gene. So that's an extreme an example. But I think we always have to be careful when we when we're using the word cause. Yeah, but is, I, is well, you,
2: do, you talk a lot about it in the book, but surely when, when you say yeah. in education that, you know, if you do uh, identical twin studies, and you can, you can start separating these factors out and the outcomes, and, and and drawing conclusions about what role genetics played, what role environment played. Uh, I mean, why could you do that, which I think you said you could do for education, but not do it for height? I mean, I, I, I mean, I've probably got much too simplistic a view of this, but I'd have thought that if a population group tended to have, you know, in greater proportion, a gene that gives you greater height, that would suggest there was a group effect.
0: Yeah, so I think this is where that like that that intuition, which seems so compelling, is actually incorrect. And I can give you an example of this, which is that, you know, people have looked at this where they've said, okay, well, which genes predict height in European ancestry populations? Okay, now let's add up those number of genes that African populations have or Asian populations have. And you end up with why, like wildly wrong estimates, right? So if we just took our knowledge and was like, okay, well, these genes are associated with being taller, I guess maybe that accounts for population differences. Then you would look over and you'd be like, this group is 17 inches shorter than Europeans. Like that, that's obviously not true. Like they're not 17 inches shorter than Europeans. The genes that we measure, how they're related to other genes in the genome and their effects, really, truly, you cannot take the observations that you see in one group and just like sort of wildly apply it to population differences. All right. That's a very difficult kind of point to, it sort of to is. make clear. <laughs> <Yes. Yeah. laughs> I
2: mean, I'm thinking of, you know, I don't know if you've been to Sudan and you come across the Dinka who are just astonishingly tall, you know, uh, and, and uh, it's quite a sort of um, discrete population group. They are tall. I mean, I'm pretty tall and they're, they're taller than me. Uh, and, you know, surely that's genetic.
0: You know, but the thing is, is that we have, we have, there's so many stories that people have told about, well, surely this is, surely this is genetic. And then we turn, it turns out to be wrong. It turns out to be, you know, genetics in relation to a very specific environment that can change. People have told stories about, you know, are the Irish naturally violent or, are? I was rereading the beginning of the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, and there's a whole long intersection where it's like, well, maybe you know, Catholics are genetically lazy, <laughs> and it's the it's the Protestants in Germany that are genetically, you know, I can't speculate about the role of heredity, but maybe it seems like the Calvinists are innately, you know, light sleepers or whatever. And you read it in in retrospect, and you think, well, that's very silly.
2: Very silly. Um, yeah. So there are lots of examples, including Nazi yeah. Germany, right? Where where these conclusions have been drawn and asserted, well, asserted and and disastrously, making everyone incredibly nervous of going anywhere near it. But that doesn't mean, does it, that none of these effects
0: will be true? I think. We should be very, we should be very skeptical of them, though. There's a great line that I like where it says that you know the the racism of the past always seems very silly and absurd, and the racism of the future feels, I mean, the the present seems like common sense. And so I think when we look around and we think common sense, uh, you know, it must be genetic. We need to bring with that both scientific humility, but also the humility born of how often we've gotten it wrong in the past with either absurd or, or, or uh, genocidal results. Mm. Now, I think you also
2: say, tell me if I got this quote right from your book, uh, people's moral commitments to racial equality are on shaky ground if they depend on exact genetic sameness across human populations. Is that right?
0: Yeah. So I think, you know, when we, right now we're kind of in this situation in which the dominant response within the academy to scientific racism, particularly scientific racism that invokes genes or classism for that, for that matter, is to say, we don't need to worry about genetics because, you know, there. There aren't any genetic differences between people that, that matter and that make a difference. And the problem with that is that it's wrong, right? Like, you know, we see evidence that genes do make a difference, individual differences and in all sorts of phenotypes, traits that we care about, personality, mental illness, intelligence test scores, school performance, weight, height. And people can see that, you know, people have priors, people have guesses about the effects of genes. So I – I want, this is kind of a silly analogy, but I, but, I, but I do think it's it's relevant here, which is if you don't talk to your kids about sex, like, where do they learn about it? It's not like they, like, never learn about sex. They learn about it from their friends, and they learn about it from porn, and they learn about it from the internet. They learn about it from the most pernicious possible sources. I think that the rule of genetics in human life is a little bit, like, sex and that it's kind of a forbidden topic that people are uncomfortable talking about but if academics don't teach about it we don't address it with our students if we don't acknowledge yes genes matter for people's lives i think we open the door to people then being curious about that topic and then where do they go for information Like Reddit, you know, like you want people to learn about genetics from the most racist, pernicious, least informed voices on the Internet. So that's what I'm saying when it says that we're we're building moral commitments on, on shaky ground. I don't want people to be in the situation in which they look around and they see that genes make a difference for people's lives and they try to make meaning of that and the only people talking about how to make meaning of that are people who are you know essentially like nazis on the internet being like and this is why this proves that white people are better than black people like that's not what genetics tells us that's not what it says but we need voices out there explaining what it does say and why we need to be cautious about it and and the the, the subtleties of interpreting it not just saying Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. There's nothing there. There's there's no there's no nothing that we need to be intellectually curious.
2: So liberals should get in on this debate. I mean, basically, is what you're saying.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't stay on the sidelines. Yeah,
2: but so it seems to me, from what you've said, a lot of the disputed areas in this will become clearer when more research is done. Right. I mean, there'll be still. Yeah, you know, it's complicated, and there'll be lots of nuance, and it won't be probably. Yeah, simplistic as yeah, you know, lots of journalists would like it to be, or or you know, all <laughs> political activists, you know, or but yeah. politicians would like it to be, but it will be clearer than it is now. How how long will it be before there are equivalent studies to the ones done in Europe and the U.S. around the world?
0: Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I think at our current pace, a very long time. Um, I think people have been sounding the the. The alarm that genetics knowledge is really only on this one kind of slice of humanity for multiple years now, and yet the proportion of people in genetic research that are not from, say, the UK Biobank is not rapidly getting much higher. So I think it's going to require some. If if it were if it was going to happen all you know naturally, quote unquote. If something would have already happened, I think it's going to require a major investment in of resources and of time to kind of shift the trajectory. That being said, you know the the biggest lesson I would say of the last fifteen years is that genetics is full of surprises. and it, it the, the trajectories are not linear. Um, so it, you know it could be that we could see an explosion of commitment of resources and of time to expanding the global diversity of genetics research, and it'd be hard for me to bet on a single number for that. I think there's a lot of uncertainty. It seems, seems to me,
2: you know, to, 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 as we come to the end of this, that you are hoping that genetic, yeah, you know, the science of genes will lead to better social outcomes. And you know, you're trying hard to find every argument that could lead in that direction. But part of you must worry that actually, you know, history suggests, and uh, there must be a strong possibility that it will go the other way, uh, uh, and that it you know it won't work out in the way that you think it ought to.
0: Yeah, I think that if I knew that good outcomes were assured, I wouldn't be out here making the case for them, right? I mean, I we it is people who are. Not just in genetics but i think in any sort of sort of in any sort of arena it's the people who see the the way things could go that are most motivated to try to create and 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 um speak into existence a different world and a different future
2: okay well thank you very much for talking us through it it, it must have been uh Quite a personal journey, I guess, taking the subject on. I don't know how you reflect on that. Do you regret doing it?
0: No, I don't. Even with the criticism, when people write to me and they say, you've you've changed my mind about this. I, I see myself or my family or my racial group or inequality or poverty in a different way. Then that makes it all worth it.
2: Mm. And are you still working on it? Are you doing more on it?
0: I'm working on a new book now that's... Um, also about biology, but biology in relation to behaviours that are punished. So biology and moral responsibility.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed. Catherine Page-Harden, been absolutely fascinating.
0: Thank you very much.